The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Amen. I love that song. The resurrected King is resurrecting me. Well, we, we are working through the book of 1 John. If you've only been with us for the last few weeks, you may not realize, but we do work through books typically. And in between books, we'll do a little break that's a little more topical in nature, but still working through the text of Scripture. But today, we come to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. There's only a couple of verses, but i got a lot to say. That's what happens when I take a week of studying and an extra week of studying. So uh, forgive me if I go too fast. But we began First John with John showing us there's three qualities of authenticity. How do you know if you're the real deal? How do you know if you really are in Christ and your salvation is secure? Uh, John will work through this over the next weeks ahead till Christmas, working through this book, helping us look for uh, signs or things to look for to increase our assurance. Now, there's a difference between assurance and your salvation. Assurance is your confidence about your salvation. And what we're trying to do is say, how can you have confidence about your salvation? And John's giving us tests. And we saw there's three qualities of authenticity. I wonder if anybody can remember any of them. What was one quality of authenticity? Huh? Say it loud. Say it loud. What, Jonathan? You didn't say anything, Jonathan? What? Okay, faith in Jesus. Always say Jesus. That's always a good one. Faith in Jesus. That's right. Brotherly love and and growing in. Who said that? Oh, wow. Gold star, Chris. I don't know what you said, but you started out right. Growing in holiness. I say, I just want to make you all right. Whatever you said. Jesus growing in holiness, brotherly love. And so he says, listen, as you look at your lives over the weeks ahead, he's going to help us say, do I genuinely trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of my sins? And then his, the first week we saw in the prologue, he went back to the historicity that Jesus was a real person who walked on this planet. People saw him, touched him, examined him, and came to the conclusion, this is the God in flesh. He did crazy miracles that no one else could do otherwise. And that's what we ground, our faith is grounded in, verifiable historical evidence that the God of the universe entered into flesh to make salvation available to us. Praise God. Faith in Jesus. The second one is growing in holiness, and that's where he's been ever since. And Jared did a great job of looking at how we think about sin and holiness in our lives. And so John is going to address that in our lives. And last week we saw that just like if this room was very dark and there was a spotlight right there, and I'm out here in the darkness and there's this beam of light right there, and I'm going, hey, I'm in that light. You're all going, no, you're not. No, I am. I believe I'm in that light. Okay, well, you may believe you're in the light, but you ain't in the light. A step in the light is like, okay, now you're walking in the light. Yeah, I think you're right. You're saying you're in the light. I see you in the light. And so what we saw is our actions reveal the genuineness of our profession. Our conduct reveals if we say we're in the light, then our lives should be characterized by light. What is light? Holiness is a simple way to think about it. God is holy. God is light. If you say you're in the light, if you say you're in the holy God, then you should see the holiness of God showing up in your life. What happens when you get in a bright light? Imperfections start to show up, right? Say, like, oh, wow, man, everybody's looking at me. They can all see that I didn't quite shave right and all that. When we're walking in holiness, we start to see sin. And he also said last week, what do you do when you see sin in your life? What do you do when sin raises and rears its ugly head? A true believer, someone who's in Christ, 
is secure enough in the grace of God that they can say, yeah, that's sin, and I need to deal with that. That's what, that's what John is saying is, look, if you know that God is faithful through Jesus, to, he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness, then you're able to say, yeah, that's sin, and that's ugly, and that's not of the light, and I need to deal with that. And, and the Bible says, confess your sins not only to God, but to one another. In fellowship, hey man, I've got this sin in my life. I'm secure in Christ, but I need to deal with this because this is not of the light. And so that's what he looked at last week. And, and we saw that true believers walk in the light. They see the holiness of God showing up in their light. And they deal honestly with the sin that pops up in their life. They don't deny it. They don't justify it. They don't say, well, that's not sin. They don't redefine it. They don't say, well, you know, it's just the way it is. It's always been that way. That's when my family raised me. It, it, I was just raised to look down of people of other color or, or on 9-11. I, I, I think it's justified for me to hate certain people. No, it's sin and I need to deal with it. And it's okay. I can deal with it because I'm secure in Christ. Grace enables me to be honest about my sin. Those of you who've had the privilege of raised kids, you know what's going on with John right now. Because you're talking to your kids and you're like, hey, God loves you. I love you no matter what. You cannot forfeit my love. Jesus forgives you of all your sins. Don't ever doubt it. But don't sin. You feel that strain when you talk to your kids? When you're teaching your kids grace, that back and forth, don't sin. But if you do sin, God loves you and forgives you. But don't sin. But if you do sin, God does love you. That's what John's doing, back and forth, that strain of the unconditional forgiveness and acceptance of God that is found by faith in Jesus Christ. But then he says, but that never, ever leads to more sin. So that's where he's going to go today. We're going to look, first of all, in verse 1, John gives us a prohibition of sin. With all this talk about grace and saying, hey, grace enables us to admit we're sinners. He's saying, but wait a minute now, my little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. I'm telling you about grace about the the faithfulness of God and and the fact that he will never, ever, you can't out-sin his grace. I want you to know that so you're secure in grace so that you'll confess your sin. But I want you to know this, not just so that you can go sin all the more and just confess, yeah, that's sin, but I'm covered. He says, I want you to know this so you'll stop sinning. I want you to know about grace. I want you to be so secure in their grace. I want your experience of grace to be so real that you hate sin. That you despise the sin in your life. I'm writing these things. My children, that's a term of endearment. I love you. I love you. And I'm telling you about grace and forgiveness that is unmerited and unbroken. You can't, I want you to know this so that you can admit it. Why do I want you to admit it? I want you to admit it so you can stop, so you can deal with it, so you can eradicate it, so you can kill it, so you can change the way you live. If you're in Christ, stop sinning. 
I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. Everywhere you see the grace of God penetrating a life, what you see after the fact is repentance. In the, in the Gospel of John, the same author wrote a gospel all about the life and the meaning of the life of Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection. We see a story about Jesus coming to a man who had been sick for 30 years. 30 years this man was sick. And Jesus healed him. And the man jumped up and ran away and was praising Jesus. Everybody's listening. And Jesus finds this man later in the temple. And listen to what he says to them in John 5, 14. Behold, you have become well. You have experienced my healing grace. Do not sin anymore. Grace produces repentance. Grace produces holiness. The gratitude of someone who has experienced grace says, I will live for you. In John 8, verse 11, you know the scene very well. The woman has been caught in adultery. She is flat out guilty. Caught red-handed. They're dragging her out and throw her in the middle of town. And they're doing what the law says to do. A crime punishable by death. And they all have the stones in their hand and they're ready to kill her. She's guilty. This is not an unjust. This is justice. This is what she deserves. Though they are religious and pious and, and pompous in their arrogance as they're doing it. Jesus didn't condemn them and say, this is not just. He says, stop. Which one of you has no sin? Let he who has no sin cast the first stone. And they all drop their stones and walk away. And then what does Jesus say to that woman? He doesn't say, I'm sorry you were unjustly accused. He doesn't say, listen, this was getting out of hand. No, he says, listen, I condemn you not. I do not condemn you. And then what does he say to her? Go and sin no more. I give you grace. I give you mercy. I give you crazy grace that you don't deserve. You deserved punishment by death. I gave you life. Now go, stop sinning. Don't sin like that anymore. Grace produces repentance. Grace is evidenced in holiness. Genuine understanding and experience of the grace of God is evidenced in obedience. If you claim that you have experienced the light, if you claim that you are in the righteous one, in the holy God of the universe, and he's declared you righteous, then your life should be holy. Kevin DeYoung wrote a great book called The Whole in Our Holiness. It's in the bookstore. Go buy it. We make no money on the books. They're all at cost. But he does a great job working out this 
idea in a, in a day where we are doing a greater job, a better job of explaining grace, that you are saved by Jesus alone. You are saved not by Jesus plus your good deeds. You are not saved by Jesus plus your holiness. You are not saved by Jesus plus your merit. You are not saved by Jesus plus anything. You are saved only when you come empty-handed to God and you say, I have nothing to offer. I'm trusting in Jesus. We're getting that. And I praise God because when you grasp that grace... It is life-changing, life-transforming. It's the equivalent of us, the adulterers, on the ground with stones in the judge's hand and Jesus saying, I've got this one. But then he says, go and sin no more. Grace, when it's understood properly and experienced, it will transform our lives so that we see the holiness of God showing up in our lives. In fact, we see that this is the very reason that God saves us. De Young points this out. He says, why were you saved? Let me ask you, why were you saved? What does the Bible say? God saved you because he loves you. Absolutely. All throughout the scriptures, God loves you. That's why he saved you. God so loved you, he sent his son to die for you so that you could have eternal life. God saved you because he loves you. What else does the Bible say? Why did God save you? If you've trusted in Christ, why did God save you? God saved you to magnify his glorious name. God saved you to show his worth, his glory, his goodness, his character, that he would reach down into undeserving, ungodly sinners and die for them that they might be saved and molded into his image. What a glorious savior. That's why God saved you to reveal his goodness and glory. Why else did God save you? The Bible makes it very clear. God saved you that you would obey him. God saved you to make you holy. God saved you. He saved Israel out of Egypt. Why? What did he do right after they crossed the sea? He gave them his word. He says, obey this. Live by this. Go live in this land I've given you to be a beacon of light to display my holiness to the rest of the world. He saved them to make them holy. God saved you for the very reason of making you holy. God saved you to plant you in the darkness, a beacon of light at your workplace, a beacon of light at your school, a beacon of light in that family, a beacon of light in that marriage. Where there is darkness and the light shows up, the darkness must Flee. God saved you to make you holy. That's not optional. It's the very definition of why he saved us. 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul says, God saved us and called us with a holy calling. The holy calling is a call to holiness by a holy God. In Ephesians 2, Paul says we are his workmanship. That means God created us. He made us. He saved us by his grace. And he, we are his workmanship. And what does he go on to say after that? In order that we may walk in the good Deeds that he prepared for us before the foundations of the earth. He saved you to walk in those good deeds. Husbands, what is your job description? These are very practical 
outgrowths of your salvation. If you are married and you are a man who says you are a man of God, your very job description is to make your wife holy. That's what he says in Ephesians 5. You are to make her holy, to present her undefiled. In the Genesis account of creation, man is alone and he says it's not good that you're alone. You need this wife to help you worship me. If you're married, your very job description, your very purpose, the very reason you were saved, the very purpose of being brought together was to make each other holy. To live a holy life, to obey God, to be moral and ethical and have integrity and to be a shining light to your friends and family and neighbors. That's why he saved you if you say that he saved you. Let's take it a little further. Holy living. Buckle your seatbelts. Holy living. Walking in the light. Obedience. Good works. Are all absolutely necessary for salvation. What? If you're a little bit upset, then good. You've been listening for the last three years. Because you've understood. I just got in my head that I'm saved apart from my good deeds, despite my good deeds, because even my best days are not good. That's right. But nobody, nobody goes to heaven without holiness showing up in their life. All who are truly saved by the unmerited favor and grace of God, without exception, it shows up in their life with obedience. And if you do not see obedience in your life, quit claiming to be saved. We were not saved to live as close to the world's line and say, look how good, look how good this is. I'm saved by the grace of God, but I am still worldly like you. That is not the message of the gospel. And stop mocking Christians who take it seriously. Stop looking down on Christians as if they don't understand grace because they're so serious about church attendance. And they don't understand grace because they're so serious about their Bible study. And they don't understand grace because they're so serious about setting boundaries in their life. They don't go to these kind of movies and they don't participate in these kind of activities. Stop looking down on people who take holiness seriously. It is why God saved us. If some people err on one side or the other, I'll take the ones who err on holiness. God saved us for the purpose of holiness. It is not cool to live as close to the world as we can because we're saved by grace. I want this church to be known for holiness. Yes, for grace and humility, but it must produce God's character in our life. Amen. 
The scriptures are filled with warning passages that tell us that obedience and holiness is absolutely required for those who expect to be saved in that future day. It is not the basis of their salvation, but it is the evidence of the genuineness of their salvation. Negatively, the passages of the scriptures all over the place say that if your life is characterized by unholiness, by ungodliness, by darkness, by doers of evil, by those who hear the word but don't do the word, then you will not and should not expect to enter the kingdom of, God, of heaven, which is all about God's holiness. DeYoung points out, why would you want to live in heaven if you don't like holiness? It's all about God's holiness and it's all about holy people. If they get on your nerves, why do you want to go there? Forever. In Matthew 7, 26, Jesus says, Only those who hear his words and do them will enter the kingdom of heaven. In Hebrews 12, 14, he says, strive. That's that's giving it all you got. Strive for peace with everyone and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You don't strive to be declared holy by God's grace. That's accomplished by grace through faith alone. But those who have been declared holy will strive to become holy in their lifestyle. And without that, they do not see the kingdom of heaven. Again, in his book, Holiness, Holiness, DeYoung quotes John Piper on the subject. Piper was responding to someone when Piper preached this concept of, of, yeah, grace saves, but grace always produces holiness in your life. And if you don't see holiness in your life, we like to refer to it for clarity's sake as growing holiness in your life. If you don't see growing holiness in the overall character of your life, then quit being so sure. And someone wrote, Piper, you've fallen off the truck. And so Piper writes, and in the appendix to his letter, quoted by DeYoung, he says, There are six passages in the Bible that speak to the necessity of doing good for eternal life. There are 15 passages on the necessity of obedience. Two, on the necessity of holiness. Two, on the need to forgive others. Four, on the necessity of not living according to the flesh. Two, on the necessity of being free from the love of money. Fourteen, on the need to love Christ and God. Six, on the necessity of loving others. And there are dozens other verses on the need to love the truth, be childlike, bridle the tongue, persevere, walk in the light, repent, fight the good fight. In other words, the child of God must be holy. Or I would say, saving grace always produces growing holiness in your life. So what does this mean for us? At least this means we cannot take sin lightly.
We must take sin as seriously as God takes sin. What is sin? Sin is the rebellious breaking of God's good, beautiful, glorious will for our life. Sin is breaking the commands of God. Sin is rebelling against the holy God. Sin is the very antithesis of God. The father of sin is the anti-Christ. To sin is to join the anti-Christ in everything that opposes God. Sin is serious. And it is just, and it is good, and it is loving, and it is right for God to punish sin. The very concept of justice that, that you raise up and say, well, how dare you say God should punish my sin? That comes from the justice of God. The fact that you even think you deserve justice. It's easier to see when you think about being offended against and someone committing a crime against you. What do you think is right then? You think they should be punished and you're right. That is what justice demands. A just God demands that sin is punished and that is good and that is right and that is loving. The seriousness of sin is seen in God's complete destruction of the earth at the flood. Wiped it out. Are you offended by that? God says it was wicked. And everything in their heart was nothing but wicked all the time. And God was gracious to start over. We see the seriousness of sin in your stories in the Old Testament of Sodom and Gomorrah. Wickedness. It sounds like a lot of what we're seeing today. And God wiped it out. And the picture is a city that has been completely razed to the ground, smoke rising as justice to the nostrils of a holy God. And it's right. And our humanness is terribly offended by this. The seriousness of sin is seen in the sacrificial system that God gave Israel, where the sinner brought to God an offering that was whole burnt offering. That means it was completely incinerated, nothing left. It had to be completely dealt with for the offerer, the worshiper, to have fellowship with the holy God. And God graciously gave them a manner of which they could have that. The seriousness of sin is seeing on the day of atonement when the high priest took the lamb, he put his hands on a goat, symbolically laying the sins of the people on the goat and let it escape completely away from the camp so that the sins of the people would be removed from the camp. And then the innocent, perfect, spotless blood of the lamb was slaughtered and offered on the altar because sin requires death. And the blood is the analogy of the life that we give for our, de- for our sin. We deserve death. And so we see sin is serious. 
God says the wages of sin is death. John says that life eternal is embodied in this eternal existing creator who graciously took on flesh to reveal eternal life to us, to make it accessible to us. And he says, when you, by faith, are joined to him, you have life. When you sin and are separated from him, you have death. Sin is atrocious, wicked separation of everything good. It is destructive. It destroys lives. Nothing good comes from sin. Everything you hate about this world, everything you hate about your life, everything you hate about relationships is sin. It came from sin. No wonder God hates it because it's terrible for you. It's terrible for me. Anybody who loves you would hate it in your life too. Sin is serious. Sin is wicked. Sin is sinful. And it is right and good for God to pour wrath on sin. God's wrath must be completely satisfied. The term, theological term for that is propitiation. The right, good, loving, just wrath of God must be satisfied. Pictured in the whole burnt offering, pictured in Sodom and Gomorrah, pictured in the flood, pictured in the sacrificial system. It must be satisfied. Justice must be fulfilled. God can't sweep it under a rug, wink, wink, and nod, nod, and just ignore it. That is wicked. That is evil. What kind of judge would you think was a good judge if he did that when you were sinned against? God must be propitiated. He must be satisfied. This propitiation is not the bribing of an ill-tempered God. Rather, it is the proper, just punishment for sin that satisfies the righteous justice of God. So authentic believers... Feel this weightiness of the holiness of God. And they take sin seriously. We will spend a lot more time in the weeks ahead on the subject. And I encourage you to read De Young's Hole in Our Holiness. But today we must hear John's prohibition of sin. Authentic believers who have experienced saving grace, hate the sin in their life. And they battle against it every day so that over time they see I'm growing in holiness. So last week and this week, we see it all together. Genuine sinners see the evidence of holiness in their life. They admit it when they sin and they admit it so that they can deal with it. All the while knowing they are covered by the grace of God. And that leads us to the second point. God's provision for sin. Praise God for the provision of sin. Just like you do when you're talking to your children. My little children. I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. Don't sin. It destroys you. It defames God. 
But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation. That's that word, propitiation. He is He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. So before we get into this provision for sin, we need to first note that when John says, if anyone sins, John chooses a verb tense, which means that this is an individual act and not an ongoing habitual lifestyle. If you're a believer and you're walking in the light and you stumble, you you, you sin. You make that horrible decision to give in and you, you do it. He says, well, if anyone does this, and John Stott refer, says it's referring to an individual act that is, that is uh, a single act that is contrary to the overall tenor of one's life. Committing acts of sin is not the norm for this authentic Christian. But when this person does sin and it's grievous to them, God has graciously provided for you. So don't doubt your salvation. You see what he's doing? Some people, grace gives them a license to sin. He says, oh, no, 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 no. That's not what grace produces. Other people, when they sin, they fear they're going to lose their salvation. He says, no, no, no. If you've truly experienced the grace of God and you mess up, God has provided. Now, what is that provision? He says two things. Jesus is your advocate. Jesus is is your propitiation. God has provided Jesus for your sin. When he says he's your advocate, that's the term that paraclete, he says he comes alongside you and he fights for you. Jared did a great job last week of painting that courtroom scene. And it's the picture of the accuser pulling out the file cabinet, as he said, and going one by one. He did this last night. He did this 30 years ago, and I'm never going to let him forget about that. And Jesus comes alongside and says, I covered that. I got that. You can't hold that against him. I got that one too. Go ahead. Let it all out because I got it all. He's an advocate. He comes alongside you. But let me ask you a question. Why is he there? Why is Jesus there? Fighting on your behalf, arguing your case. Because God sent him there. Because God loves you. If you're a believer, you don't picture God as this mean judge just ready to slap you down. Instead, he says, notice what he says in chapter 2. He says he pleads your case before the Father. My little children, I'm writing these things. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. You see, now he's your father. And so let's change the analogy. You're not in a courtroom. You're at home with your dad and your brother Jesus. And Satan starts accusing you. And you say, get out of my house. This is my house. And your dad's going, no, no, no. I've taken care of him. I've adopted him. He's my son. He's a child of the light. And Jesus is saying, I got this. And then he pleads his propitiation. He says, I gave my infinitely holy, perfect blood. I gave my sinless life. I was the broken lamb. I absorbed the wrath of God. And you can't 
touch him. He's my brother. Yeah, I know we messed up last night, but I got him. Nothing can separate him from this family. Praise God for that. Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is our propitiation. Next week, we're going to see as an aside, there's another advocate, same word, paraclete. Jesus is your advocate in heaven before the father pleading the case of his brother, the child of light and the Holy Spirit is on earth pleading Jesus case to you day in and day out. Convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. God is for you. God loves you. God proactively came to get you and adopt you and die for you and plead your case and make you holy. And when you grasp that grace, that unmerited, unconditional, endless grace, you say, I'm going to go live for my father who is holy and righteous and good. I'm going to be the light. Because he is that awesome. It's a radically different concept than legalism. But I've got to appease a God who's mad at me. So what about each one of us? Are you authentic? Are you just giving lip service to Christ? I've been saved by the grace of God. And now I'm going to go live cool and be hip and do all those things. It's not that big a deal because I've been forgiven. Really? It's not, not jiving. But if you are saying, I've grasped the grace of God and I'm striving. I stumble, but I can't believe it, but God's not holding that against me. And that grace enables you to get back up and fight another day. And that one stubborn sin that everyone in here is thinking in their head, yeah, but that one stubborn sin, what is your attitude toward it? Do you hate it? Okay. Good. Are you still fighting it? Okay. That's characteristic of people who've experienced the grace of God. If you ever give in to it, beware. So, only you can answer this for yourself. Is it real? Let's pray together. Lord, may we not play games with such a serious matter of your glory and your holiness. And Lord, we walk a a difficult strain that is real. On the one hand, people who are too loose with cheap grace and give themselves a license to sin and don't take sin seriously, may they be very afraid. On the other hand, those who are legalistically tendencies, they they tend to 
think that when they stumble that they've they've outsinned the grace of God and they've they're going to lose their salvation may they be comforted but lord may our lives be characteristic of children of the light children of holiness may this church and the people of this church the members who have covenanted with this body may we humbly by your grace, empowerment, by your strength, may we be like that woman and that crippled who was healed. May we go out sinning no more and telling people, this is what Jesus did for me. And Lord, I pray that your spirit, who is the, the advocate on this earth that is convicting us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, I pray, Lord, that we would listen and obey and that through our lives people would come to know that they are saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ that believers would be assured unbelievers would come to salvation for none of us stand here pointing to ourselves and our righteousness and our merit but we come as humbled by the grace of God, striving to reflect the glory of God. And it's through the precious blood of Jesus Christ that we are cleansed. And it's only by his blood that we stand before the throne of God on that day. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.